opportunity then for us to look at Ruth chapter 4 and a wedding that God had a hand in. Uh, we've been going through the book of Ruth and are excited about what to see what God has done, uh, not primarily in the life of Ruth, but in the life of Naomi. Um, the book is titled Ruth, but Naomi is the one that God is predominantly working in her heart. We see her from chapter 1, and we see the work of God in her return as she comes back from her, her uh, sojourn in the land of Moab. You'll remember that it was God's work that brought her back. She heard how God had visited his people in giving them bread. And that is what drew her back. I'm reminded of the verse in Romans where Paul says, it is the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. And it is God's goodness, not only that we are given the opportunity to return when we have strayed, but it is God's goodness that draws us back. And then again, we see the work of God in Naomi and Ruth's life in chapter 2 with the riches of Boaz, not monetary riches, but in the provisions that he gives to her and how God meets their everyday needs. I, I think it's so important for us to, be, to recognize that it is God's hand at work in everything that we have every day, by whom we live and breathe and have our being. It is God that gives us the breath to breathe. I heard a fellow say one time, he made the statement, he said, well, God's never done anything for me. I said, can you please say that again? Because the air that it took for you to say those words was air that God gave you to live. You just spoke and breathed because God gave you that breath. And so the provisions that God gives us every single day is God at work in our life. And then in chapter 3, we saw the rest. And aren't you thankful for the rest that we can have? Not just the physical rest. He gives his beloved sleep. But the rest that we can have in this world to trust and to know uh, that God is in control. There are those who think they are in control. There are those who think others are in control. I have to laugh occasionally at some of the conspiracy theories that people will share with me about who they think is pulling the strings and who they think is really in control. And I want to just answer every one of them back, God's in control. That's not a conspiracy. That's a fact. And God is in control. And he's the one that gives us rest. We can lay our head on our pillow at night. And Ruth could sit still. Because the man will not let the day go by until he finishes what is going on. Chapter 4 tells us about that work of Boaz. He tells us what takes place. And in this chapter, we see the great work of God in redemption. I want to begin reading in verse 1. And as I read, I want you to notice the number of times that there are references to purchases, to buying, to redeeming. Because they all have the same action in mind the action of purchasing and buying back. And that is the theme of these first verses. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there. He's not just walking up into a prominent place in the city and having a seat. This, is a, this, is the, this would be the equivalent in our day of taking a, a ream of documents into court and sitting down and presenting our case. We're filing a case. He is giving everyone notice, everyone that sees him there. This is the place where court cases take place, where business transactions take place. It's the, it's the local courthouse. And he's letting everyone know that I'm here to do business. And then notice what he does. He says, as the, he says, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake 
came by. Now, again, I want to pause here because this is, this is of great interest. Remember that nothing in this story is happening by chance. It, it's seen by chance, for example, that, that Ruth would by hap light in Boaz's field to glean and to harvest, but it was no accident. It was God at work. And it's no accident that after Boaz sits down, the first person that passes by is the very man that he needs to see. The Bible doesn't tell us what his name is, and it's interesting that it doesn't because there's a number of names listed here, but in contrast with the names that matter in this story, here is a name that doesn't matter because the man refuses to do what is his task to do. He says, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. I've got business to do with you, is what he's saying. And he had turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city. He only needs two witnesses, but in important cases, they would often get ten or more. They would get many witnesses. And so he's got ten witnesses, and these are not just any people of the city. These are the elders. These are the leaders of the city. And he said, sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsmen, Naomi that has come again out of the country of Moab sells a parcel of land which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, I thought to announce to you, saying, buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Let me give you a little insight into this so that you understand to, we get to our point about this that this kinsman redeemer was a part of God's law. It was God's plan for his people to have the land in the land of Canaan. You'll remember that when Israel came into the land of Canaan, they divided the land up. This tribe got this portion, and within that tribe, families got certain portions, and each family got their land. In, a, in an agrarian society, in a, in a society that lived off of herds and crops, they had to have land to survive. God was providing for his people the opportunity that they could have as hard as they would work. If they worked hard, if they worked their land, then they would be provided for. But if someone died, and as in the case of Elimelech, a widow was left, and there was no one not only to tend the land, but there was no one to keep that family name going, then the kinsman redeemer would step in. There were several requirements for the kinsman redeemer. First of all, he had to be a, a blood relative. He had to be a close relative. He had to be able to purchase the property. And then thirdly, he had to be willing to purchase the property. And then the fourth requirement was he had to be willing, if there was a widow, he had to be willing to marry the wife of the deceased family member. When we think about this, I'm reminded that Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. I'm glad that he is one who is near of kin. Christ came to this earth, born of a woman. He took on flesh. Why? So that he would be near of kin to us. So that he would be able to redeem us. But not only did Jesus come to be our near kinsman, he also was able. He had the merits to pay for our sins. It is by his perfect life, coupled with his, his vicarious death, that our sins could be paid for. There is no one else that has ever lived a sinless life. There is no one else who is qualified and able to pay for our sins. But not only was he able, he was willing. You remember what Jesus said? No man 
takes my life from me, I lay it down willingly. This, this kinsman is not going to be willing. He is able, he's qualified, but he's not willing. I'm glad. I am glad that Jesus Christ went to the cross willingly to pay for my sins and to redeem me from sin. And then Jesus was willing to marry. The church is described in the New Testament as the bride of Christ. And so when we think about the work of God, we think about the work of redemption, that he has redeemed us. He has bought us back from our sins. He has purchased us to be his bride, the Bible says. When we see that in this chapter, we see his work. And I want you to see three things about the work of God. First of all, this work of redemption gives us freedom from our past. Ruth and Naomi are in this situation because of Naomi's past choices. Very often we find ourselves in situations that are the consequences of our past choices. We find ourselves in predicaments. We find ourselves in problems because of the past choices we made. Now, I suspect that none of you have ever been through this, but occasionally in my life I have regretted some choices that I've made in the past. Most of y'all have probably never experienced that. You're just completely happy with every choice you've ever made. You're happy with the consequences, and everything has turned out well for you. Amen? I'm not hearing one amen this morning. That is not the time for a good amen. Why? Because we all have experienced that. We all know that we have made choices, and we look at our past, and we have regrets. We could, we could look at this past year and say, how many of us have some regrets from 2020? There's things that we look back on and we worry about the past, and there are those who carry around the guilt of the sinful choices that they have made. Naomi is being redeemed. Ruth is being redeemed from the past. God is at work in their lives, and he is freeing them from the past. I'm glad that when God frees me from the past... He does several things. First of all, he forgives. Because of redemption, he forgives the sins that I have committed. Aren't you glad for the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God? How many of you have had to go to God for forgiveness of sins in the past 30 minutes? A few, few honest folks, rest of you lied, so now you have something to ask forgiveness for. We often have to ask forgiveness, but I'm glad that God forgives our past. People may not forgive us. People may not let go of things. Ever had somebody bring up something that you did way back that you thought they had forgiven you for and they were just holding on to? Sometimes in marriages that will happen. You think it's gone and in the past and 20 years down the road in a good fight. Not a good fight. There really are you know, in, a, in a hot fight. Somebody, will, one spouse will bring up, well, you remember what you did, and you thought it was in the past. Or maybe you'll encounter someone that you knew you years ago. I remember talking to a man, and he said, everybody that I encounter keeps bringing up what I did. Man may bring up our past. People may bring up our past. But God has forgiven those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And our sins are forgiven, and we don't have to carry around the guilt of our past. I've heard people say, well, I know that God has forgiven me, but what I struggle with is forgiving myself. Look, I don't have the right. I don't deserve the right to forgive myself. So why would I ever think I could forgive myself? 
And why would I not do what God has already done in his grace and in his mercy? He forgives our sins. But not only does he forgive our sins, he also frees us from our past. You know, a lot of people are carrying around baggage that's just not theirs. One of my favorite sayings of late has been, quit carrying, quit picking up luggage that doesn't have your name on it. You know, if you go to the airport and you fly, I've seen people about have knockdown drag outs when they get to those little, you know, the conveyor belt comes around and all the stuff's going and the person goes over and grabs it and the other person says, uh-uh, that's mine. And they, why? Somebody's trying to get a piece of luggage that doesn't have their name on it. And there are people, very often we, are carrying around baggage and weights and burdens that don't have our name on it, that's not ours to carry. Christ frees us from the burdens and guilt of our past. Naomi is carrying around the burden. She comes back from, she comes back from Moab, and she says, I am bitter. She has been affected physically. She's lost her family. She has been affected emotionally. She says, call me Mara, for I am bitter. And she has been affected spiritually. She says, the hand of God is against me. She believes that God has turned against her. And she is carrying that past, but she is finding out through the work of God in her life, through the work of redemption that God is doing through Boaz, she is finding out that God is freeing her from that past. But I love also that God doesn't just forgive us of our sins, and he doesn't just free us from our past. He also, in his sovereign work, forms what we see as our regrets and our mistakes, and sometimes even our sinful mistakes, and he turns them for good. We just saw just this morning in our Sunday school lesson, wonderful lesson this morning, by the way. If you haven't been in Sunday school, you've missed a great study of Joseph over the past weeks, and I'm looking forward to our study through through the book of Philippians. But in Joseph, we saw that there were those who meant it for evil, but God used it for good. God meant it for good. And there are things in our life that we do that were wrong. And God never says, well, that wasn't a sin. What you did was okay. But God can take even our sinful mistakes and our sinful choices, and he can still turn them for good. It was wrong for Elimelech and Naomi to go to Moab. And the very thing that she's embarrassed about when she comes back, she says, look, Ruth and Orpah, I want you to stay behind. Part of it was for their benefit, but part of it's for Naomi's benefit. She doesn't want to walk into Bethlehem with two Moabites uh, girls walking with her that her daughter-in-laws are an acknowledgement that her sons broke God's law and married outside the nation of Israel. And so she's embarrassed by it, and the very thing that's an embarrassment to her that she sees as the result of her wrong choices is the very thing that God has taken. God is taking that young Ruth and he is turning in her into and using her as the greatest blessing in Naomi's life. That's what God does. You can look at your past and you can see the, the sinful choices you made. You can see the mistakes you've made. And God, he will forgive those. He never says it was okay, it didn't really matter. Yes, it mattered, it was sin, it was wrong. You've got to confess it and repent of it and he forgives. But he can then take what was done wrongly for wrong motives and he can turn it for good and accomplish his work. That's redemption. Aren't you glad that God can redeem 
our past mistakes. God can redeem our past sins. God can redeem the wasted years of our life, and he can turn them for good. I believe that there's some of us here this morning that need to get a hold of that because you're carrying around the weight of the past, what God has freed us from. He not only frees us from the past, but notice also in these next verses, Boaz goes and he, he this is an interesting, I, I really want you to see this. This is some great, um, great things from their culture. The kinsman said, Boaz sort of sets the guy up. He says, um, you want to redeem this? Verse 4, he said, I will redeem it. Verse 5, Boaz said, what day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. Boaz sort of sets the man up. He knows that he wants the field. Every farmer needs a little more land to grow some crops on and to to take care of, and he wants to expand his farm. And he says, oh, yeah, by the way, when you buy the land, you've got to marry the bride. And suddenly the man's desires change, and the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Now, whether he means that he doesn't want to... um, he doesn't want to have children that conflict with his children. I believe a large part of his problem is he looks at, Na- looks at Ruth, and he doesn't see her as a kinsman would. He sees her as a foreigner, as an alien to Israel. He sees her as a descendant of Moab. And he says, nah, no, I, I don't want to do that. You see, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh God sending his own son in the person in the likeness of sinful flesh paid for our sin. You see, this this kinsman is like the law. He follows the law. He's ready to do, but he won't act in grace. He'll only go as far as he has to go. And that's what the law did. The law was not capable of bringing us to God, but Jesus Christ as our kinsman redeemer is willing to act in grace. And so this man says, I can't do it. And Boaz says, I will do it. Now look in verse 7. This was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. And this was a testimony in Israel. Aren't you glad they created receipts? Can you imagine if everything you bought or purchased, you had to trade a shoe with somebody to... I've seen some folks at Walmart. I don't want their shoes. (laughs) Actually, the law called for if if the man would not redeem the woman, the woman got to go over and take his shoe and spit in his face. Aren't you glad times have changed? We're not under the law. We're under grace. Grace is so much better. But they, they create this transaction. And in verse 8, the kinsman says to Boaz, buy it for yourself, buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. Boaz calls for the witnesses that are standing around. Apparently not just the ten that he got, but there's others that have passed by. They've seen what's going on. And let me just, I don't want to try to put too much into Scripture, but let me tell you that when grace is in action, it'll catch people's attention every time. When God is at work, it will get people's attention. And so this crowd gathers around, and Boaz says, look, I want you to witness that I am buying this land, I am marrying Ruth, 
and the transaction is taken care of so that the dead be not cut off from among his brethren. He said, you are witnesses this day. The people and the elders pronounce a blessing, a prophetic blessing on Boaz concerning this marriage, concerning this family. And then I love what the ladies say to Naomi. In verse 13, Boaz took Ruth. He married her. She was his wife. He went into her. The Lord gave her conception. God is it still at work. And she bare a son. Isn't it interesting that the few places that it specifically says in Ruth that God did something. It's related to life. It's related to life. When the Lord visited his people, he took barren fields and he gave life to them and they brought forth harvest. And when the Lord acts in chapter 4, he gives conception to Ruth and a child is born. I'm glad that the work of my God is a life-giving work. And he gives life and this child is born. And notice what the women say. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord which has not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. Let me just pause and say that I'm sort of suspicious that um, at, at elderly years that a baby in the house was much of nourishing life to, to Naomi. She was probably happy to have the, the baby around, but, um, you know, babies can sort of, they take up time and they take up a lot of effort. But Naomi doesn't begrudge that. Naomi takes that child to her and welcomes that child and takes care of that child. Look at what they say about Ruth. For thy daughter-in-law which loves thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, has borne him. Naomi takes the child and cares for the child. And the women name it. They said in verse 17, there's a son born to Naomi. They called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse the father of David. Not only does God give us freedom from our past, God gives us fullness in our present. There are a lot of people that are excited about what God has saved them from. Let me tell you, the greatest testimony of God's work in our life is what God is doing for us now. God is always at work, and God is blessing us. And if we look around us, we talk about all the bad things of 2020. And yes, there are many, many things that have happened. There are some bad things that have happened. But if we look at what God is doing, we will see the blessings that God has given us, the fullness that God has given to us. Jesus said in John that he that hath the Son hath life, and he comes that we might have life. That's redeeming us from our past. That's resurrecting us from our dead past. But we might have life, and that we might have it, what? More abundantly. Are we enjoying the fullness of the Christian life? I understand there's struggles, I understand there's hardships, I understand there's low times in our life when we're going to be discouraged and we're going to despair. But I want you to know that there is the blessedness of dwelling in Christ. There is the blessedness of the abiding life. There is the blessedness and the joy and the fullness that we can enjoy by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, that life-giving work that God does, that we can experience fullness in Him. And we walk around. Someone has said that, Many people don't come to church because they're afraid they'll end up looking like us. We 
have a bad case of the mully grubs or something. I'm not sure what's wrong with us, but the joy and the fullness of the Christian life. I, I think about Naomi, and this, this verse has leapt out at me from the very first time when I began reading again through this book over and over to prepare for preaching this series. This verse grabbed me where they say to her, your daughter-in-law is better to thee than seven sons. And I think about how empty Naomi thought she was when she came out of Moab. And she comes out and she says, I went out full. She thought she had everything that life had to offer. But her idea of what was full was really empty. And when she came back, how insulting to Ruth. Ruth is standing there with her and she says, I went out full and I came back empty. She looks at Ruth and she sees a zero. She sees a nothing. But these women say to her, look, Ruth is better to you than seven sons. How many sons did you have when you left, Naomi? Well, I just had two. And you thought you were full. But God has given you in your emptiness, he has made you fuller than you were to begin with. And you had two sons, but this girl's better than seven sons. And I suspect most ladies in here would probably say that one good woman's better than seven men anyway. The fullness that God has given to her. You may think that you are full with the things of this world. Or you may think you're empty because of your past mistakes. But God can give a fullness by grace. He is able to make a bound to us so that we may have sufficiency in all things and abound, Paul said, to every good work. The fullness of our present. But I want you to see in these last five verses what we would often overlook. And that is the fulfillment or the faith for our future. They said, your, your son's going to be something. This... This kinsman, we're, we're asking the Lord to bless him, that his name may be famous in Israel. Obed's name's not really that famous in Israel. We don't know a thing he did, except be born and have a son named Jesse. That's all we know about him. His name is famous. Why was his name famous in Israel? Because every time... The genealogy of a very important person was read. Obed's name was read. Every time the genealogy of David, the king, was read. Why was it important? Why is one of the reasons it's believed this story is part of Scripture? The book of Ruth, it's believed a part of that is to help establish the royal claim of King David. When Jacob is dying, he calls all his sons around him, and he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. And so the, the line from Judah all the way down to David is being established. And this, this statement at the end says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez was the son of Judah. And he links them all the way down to Boaz, and then from Boaz to David. There is an element of the unknown, of uncertainty, that is, that is inerrant in faith. And when they say, we're praying and we're asking for God to bless this child so that his name may be famous in Israel, there is that hope of the future. That even in this time, they are looking for the Messiah that would come. And it is 
King David, the grandson of this little baby, who will one day as a, as a young man be keeping sheep out in his father's field. And he'll get the call to go back to his father Jesse's house, this man's, this baby's son. And he'll go back home, and he of all his brothers, all his older brothers, will be chosen by God to be the king of Israel. And you see, it's this, this story is not just about Ruth. The Bible is not just about us. We think of it, it's about, oh, it's about Ruth. It's not really just about Naomi or Boaz or even Obed. It's also about David, and it's about him being the king to God's people and all the blessings that God sends through David. But it goes beyond that. This book ultimately is not about David. David is the king that would be told, your kingdom will not depart, and your descendant will be the king that will reign forever. Your, your descendant will be the Messiah. So this book is ultimately not even about David. This book is about Jesus. And this book is a reminder that we have faith for the future, not just because of what God is doing now, not just because of what we see in our life, but that God's work transcends generations, that what God begins in a past generation will continue through it, and we get to be a part of what God is doing. I'm glad that I get to be a part of what God is doing, but I don't think that everything God's going to do is going to take place in my lifetime. And God is going to continue on. And God is working now, and God has been working, and God will work. He is an eternal God, and he is not only omnipresent in, in space, he is everywhere at all times. He is omnipresent in time, and he is in the past, and he has redeemed me from my past, and he has freed me from that past, and he has given me fullness in the present, but he has also given me faith for the future that no matter what the future holds, no matter what takes place, God will still be at work. And the same God that has brought us through the past year is the same God that will see us through the next. And no matter where we are, no matter what takes place in the future, in that time, God is there. And that is the trust that we have, that this is the fulfillment. These verses are the evidence of the fulfillment of, of the promises of the preceding verses. The verses, the, the fulfillment that Naomi probably never got to see. She probably never got to meet Jesse, Obed, little baby Obed's son. But God was fulfilling the promises. And even if we never get to see the fulfillment, God is going to fulfill his purpose. What does the future hold? Faith always has that uncertainty. When, when Peter stepped out of the boat, there was uncertainty, and he certainly showed it when the waves rose up. And many times we step out on faith, and we're doing pretty good, and we're making it pretty good, and then there's a doubt in our minds. Ever step out on faith and trust God for something, and as soon as you did, you began to almost, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I shouldn't have committed to do that. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't have promised to, to work in that children's class. <laughs> maybe, maybe that was a bad choice. Maybe that was a bad... And we step out on faith, and doubts begin to come. Why? Because we don't know what the future holds. I, I love the, the story of a, a map that is somewhere in a museum in Britain, is my understanding, in Great Britain, in England. 
And it was first drawn in the 1500s. Back then, they didn't know where certain things were, and they hadn't explored everywhere. And so they would sometimes write into the, the edges of the map things like, here be dragons, or here be monsters. Because they didn't know what was there, and so their imaginations assumed the worst. Not like anything we would ever do about the unknown. Assume the worst. But isn't that the way we treat the future? We don't know, and so we, we think the worst possible things. And so they would write these things there. This was added to for several hundred years. And in the 1800s, Christian explorer and cartographer, Sir John Franklin, this map came into his possession. And as he looked at that, they say he took a pen and he went to each of those places where they had written, here be sea dragons, here be monsters. And he drew a line through it and he wrote these words, here is God. Because he understood that in the unknown, in the places where we are uncertain and in the uncertainty of the future, we can know that, what God, that not only that God is there, but that God is good. And I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what next week holds. I don't know what an hour from now holds. We don't know what the future holds. It is that undiscovered country. It is that unknown that is ahead of us. But I can tell you that whatever is along our path, Whatever we will pass by, God is there. And we can trust the future. And these simple words in this genealogy that we generally pass over because we don't want to try to pronounce them is the fulfillment of the promises that God gave to Naomi. Aren't you glad for the promises of God? Aren't you glad for what God has freed us from. Let me ask you this this morning. What is it in your past that you need to be freed from? What is it in your past that you need to be freed from? What are you hanging on to that you need to accept and acknowledge and just embrace? God has put that in my past. It is under the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells me that God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Do you know how far that is? That's infinite. You keep going east and see if you can ever get to the west. That's how far God has removed our sins. So what do you need to leave in the past? What is it in your present that you need to see as God's blessing and God's fullness? That God is blessing. It's easy for us to get focused on all the bad things that are happening and all the terrible negative things, but look for what God is doing. Look for his hand at work in your life. Look for the fullness and learn to live and enjoy the fullness of the Christian life. And what is it about your future that you need to trust God for? Parents, trusting your children with turning them over to God and trusting God to take care of them, to lead them, to guide them. Financially, trusting what is God, how is God going to provide how are we going to make it through this? Trusting God with our physical beings, with our health and our wellness. Trusting God for what the days ahead will hold. We cannot see the future. But we follow a God who has seen the end from the beginning. And he is at work.
There's that old song that we often sing and think about that just simply says, I don't know about tomorrow. I don't know what tomorrow holds. Essentially, it's the message of the song, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know he holds my hand. Father, I pray this morning that you will help us in this story to see your hand at work as we have seen it at work in the life of Naomi. And we have seen it at work in the life of Ruth and the life of Boaz and the beginning of the life of a little baby named Obed and eventually in the life of a king named David and a nation of people. And Lord, then at work through your son who came to this earth as our Savior. And it's easy for us to look at these and say, he was at work in their lives. Lord, help us to experience your work in our lives, right here, right now, in this moment. 